All right. So I am really excited to be here with my friend Emily Bell, who is here to talk to us today about some animals. So say hi, Emily. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, So tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you've been up to. Okay, sure. So, um, well, I guess I'll start by saying I am also not necessarily a biological animal expert, but I have worked in the natural resources field um, for all of my career. So for about 12 years now, Um, my background is actually in social science. I majored in anthropology and sociology in school and then kind of went straight into the workforce. I'm not like a master's or a PhD uh, person, but um, have been really lucky in that Um, I started interning with the Nature Conservancy, doing some, so most of my work revolves around connecting people with the science and the information we need to make good decisions about our natural resources. So it's bringing that social science to the forefront of the biological sciences to help communicate and and make an impact and change behaviors and stuff like that. So um, I was an intern for the Nature Conservancy, and I, I kind of just got thrust into this world of invasive species work through that because what they brought me on to do was initiate a survey among landowners in Northeast Florida about the plants they were dealing with. It was basically priority setting on where to put our resources, what to put our resources towards working on, on invasive plants in the area. And so from there, I decided kind of, you know, typical out of college story, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but really was interested in natural resources. And I just started applying for um, park ranger jobs because I was like, that would probably be cool. That does sound really cool. (laughs) Yeah. And I got really lucky because I applied at some state parks and I applied at this place called the, and it's a mouthful, the Guanatalamano Matanzas National Estuarine Research Reserve. Nailed it. (laughs) <laughs> Basically, I just well, I just went on the, you know, Florida has a website for all their government jobs. I just went in there and looked for anything park ranger and that's just applying for them. And so what was cool is that National Estuarine Research Reserves are a NOAA state partnership. So federally, they're administered by NOAA. And in each state where there's a NERV, call them NERS, um, they have a state partner. So in Florida, it's the Department of Environmental Protection. And so they have three main branches. They have land management, um, hence the like ranger type positions. They have research and they have education. And so I just happened to, this happened to be the place where I got hired on as a park ranger and was able to transition because of my background into a program called the Coastal Training Program, which I can't know how many there are now. There's about 28 NERS in the in the U.S. have this coastal training program. And the, the goal of that program is to take the science and research that comes out of the reserve and our partners, uh, the universities and the academic world, and translate it for coastal decision makers. So it's a lot of workshop holding. Um, it's a lot of coordinating working groups and uh, bringing partners to the table to leverage efforts and resources. I've never done kid stuff. I've really only, I've never really worked like the K through 12 beat. And so from there was, uh, I worked in that program and then I coordinated that program for a few years, which set me up. And so this was a more broad focus, right? It's estuary issues, but because I had kind of started in that invasive species program with the Nature Conservancy, I brought that with me and kind of my program had a focus on that. 
And that work led me to a position in Hawaii where I was uh, brought in to update a strategic plan for the Hawaii Invasive Species Council, which is a um, statewide legislative body that uh, helps coordinate invasive species priorities and funding statewide. So I was there for a few years doing that. And then... um, Okay, so I'm, I'm a native Floridian, fifth generation on my dad's side, where I'm deeply ensconced in, in Florida. I love Florida. It's just, it's in my veins. It's in my blood. Um, but, you know, so I moved across the, the globe and then, and that was an incredible experience, but just really, you know, came home to my roots and um, am now working for the University of Florida as an invasive species programs coordinator um, for both extension and uh, I coordinate the Florida Invasive Species Partnership, which is a partnership effort to leverage resources on invasive species work amongst agencies and organizations. So sorry, that was a lot and probably way too long, but just kind of my background and how I got here. And I think the best thing about my career trajectory and the coolest thing is that as a person who kind of has these skills in facilitating and bringing groups together and and holding meetings and kind of that organizational component, I have gotten to work with and sit in rooms while some really amazing scientists are discussing their work. And and so through that, um, I have learned so much and continue to learn. And and it's just been a really fun adventure. And I'm so blessed that I have been, you know, just put in the right places to do that. That does sound like a really incredible journey. It sounds like you've really been uh, there and back again. Because Hawaii, you know, being basically on the other side of the planet, but still like a somewhat similar sort of environment, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and it is really fascinating because, you know, in the invasive species world, Florida and Hawaii are very related when it comes to invasive species. Florida is the second most impacted state in the United States. Hawaii is the first. Um, and wow. that's a lot because of the island ecosystem, because islands are smaller territories are much more uh, susceptible and, and tend to incur a lot more damage from invasive species. And so we share similar invasive species. Like we have plants here in Florida that are also really bad invaders in Hawaii. We have a few plants here that are native to Hawaii, but invasive to us. Hawaii has some plants that are native to here, but invasive to them. Um, and so there's all these connections. And so it really was an interesting you know, experience to learn a whole other part of the world and learn kind of what's going on in the Pacific. Uh, worked a little bit with some folks from Guam and some of those other islands, but also really see how connected we were and how actually one of, and this is you know not a happy story, but one of Hawaii's worst current insect invaders, the little fire ant, they know came from potted plants that were shipped out of Florida to Hawaii. So the way we spread things, the way we share, it's just, it's, there's all these different connections that are really interesting. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit. We, we've touched on Hawaii a few different times mm-hmm. because, um, like you said, Hawaii just kind of pops off with invasive species. Mm-hmm. Um, so like one of the ones we talked about was the coqui, right? Yep. That like, yeah. they love it in Puerto Rico, but in Hawaii, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. blew up. Yeah. But so yeah, like it, it's something that I talk about a lot is that um, you know, in in Florida, you can't hardly walk outside without seeing an invasive species, you know, mm-hmm. like and so many animals that like we've come to love around here, they you're like, "Oh, it's not from yeah, here and it's not, not supposed good. to be here." Um, I will say, and this is, you know, especially and this was really in my experience from Hawaii and Florida, 
while Florida is, yes, and is heavily invaded and we're, you know, facing a lot of obstacles and especially in South Florida. So I'm from Northeast Florida, um, near, near you in Jacksonville. And so, you know, while yes, we have a lot of invaders, you can also really relatively easy go out and get into a forest or a native system that is relatively unimpacted and that is really still, you know, intact and, and you've got a lot of biodiversity. And when I moved to Hawaii, I actually struggled, um, partly because I lived in Honolulu and I've never lived in a big city. So I moved out to the islands to live in a big city, but it's really hard because all of their low level elevation areas are basically completely altered to all non-natives. And so it's really hard to get into native terrestrial habitat in Hawaii. Big Island is an exception because it's so big and it's less developed um, and Kauai to a degree, but living on Oahu, I really found my refuge in the water because you can get in the water and you see all those, you know, there's such a high diversity of native fishes and you can swim with the sea turtles every single day. And that's just magical. <laughs> but I did struggle because I really missed just being able to go out and walk on a trail and just have this high diversity of plants and, and reptiles and amphibians and mammals that are native that you can still connect with, even though we, we are facing also our own, own struggles here in the state. And I think to kind of uh, preface the animal we're going to talk about today, you know, invasive species work is tough because, you know, and even just in y'all's podcast, you know, you started a podcast about animals. And I think maybe you even discovered really quickly, you can't really talk about the natural world anymore without bumping into invasive species real quick. Right. It just it comes it's to the forefront now. It's one of the leading causes of extinctions across the the globe at this point. But it's tough work because we do it because we love nature. And that can be counterintuitive because, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about how to get rid of things. You know, how do okay? how are we going to kill off this invasive species in this area? And it may be an animal like pythons in the Everglades is a good example. Koki in Hawaii are a good example where I love snakes and frogs Mm -hmm. deeply, you know, but. I also am dedicated to protecting the native wildlife of the Everglades. And so, you know, the snakes got to go. And so it's a really hard, you know, we get a lot of pushback on that. And it's a hard balance to, it's a really hard balance, you know, to walk of saying, you know, we're here because we love nature and, and it takes a toll to have to like constantly what your work is, is like, okay, how do we get rid of some of these things that we, even ourselves, we really love them. They're just not in the right place and it's our fault. (laughs) So Sometimes you got to show nature a little bit of tough love. Yeah. Yeah. As as humans, we kind of have to, it's our responsibility to like right our wrongs. Yeah. Like, all right, we did a bad job. We did a bad thing here. We need to fix it. Got to do better. It sucks, but we got to do it. We try really hard in this world to come up with the best ways. You know, we're constantly trying to figure out more efficient and efficient ways to to beat back plant populations that use rely less on chemicals or or we can use less of the chemical we need, but it still is a necessity. Um, and of course, with animals, it's always looking for the absolute most humane or, you know, the, the, the best ways we can do it for all parties involved, the, the native and the non-native species we're dealing with. So it's something we're constantly striving for. You know, the research is ongoing and, and we're gaining insight every day. So we found, especially since we just moved into a house mm-hmm. um, that is right up against a pond. And so you can imagine we're always finding something crazy mm-hmm. in our house. Yeah. I mean, the yard is full of frogs. Mm-hmm. There are like on any given night, you can walk out on our porch and there's like at least five to 
to ten frogs just chilling on the porch. Love and it. you can't even hear the TV over how loud the frogs are in the backyard, <laughs> which is really beautiful. Um, but, you know, one time I, I went out in the backyard. I found a frog. I took a picture of it. I put it on iNaturalist to identify it. And it turned out to be a Cuban tree frog. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And you know, I looked it up a little bit and I realized that, you know, it's an invasive species. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to like humanely euthanize them on site. And I was like, I can't. I know it's really hard. I will tell you. And so up here where we are, uh, once you hit Gainesville and then even south of there, like I hear this because I being in the university, I spend some time in Gainesville. And I mean, people just the Cuban tree frogs have completely extirpated the native frogs up here. We're not quite that bad off yet. So it's, it's even more important that we do that up here because we're still on the leading edge of those populations, which are moving North into South Georgia. And so I actually found a baby one in my yard recently and I put it in a Ziploc and put it in the freezer. And my husband like thought it was, he's like, I cannot believe there's a frog in my freezer right now. Like he just couldn't, like he was like, uh, but yeah, I mean, especially when, when you're on the leading edge of an invasion, like something like that. So like in your yard, I would imagine that you still have probably a pretty healthy population of native frogs, but if you don't, if you leave those Cuban tree frogs unchecked, your native frogs will disappear. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's a, it's again, it's a hard trade-off, but an important one. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the background and the highlight on how important invasive species are because, you know, in, in Florida, especially, it's such a huge threat to our biodiversity, which is mm -hmm. kind of like, I mean, Florida just has such beautiful and amazing native wildlife, just some really absolute stunners. It's an incredible place. We have some of the most biodiverse habitats on the planet. I mean, it really is an incredible, incredible state. I mean, you can see that in our backyard right now. Mm -hmm. Like, right. it's <laughs> in that re you get into those like really wet, marshy areas, and it's just which I mean, that's pretty much Jacksonville. Jacksonville yeah. is so like nearly swampy. We built a state on a swamp. I mean, we mm -hmm. we did. You know, the whole state essentially was swamp before we came in and started doing things. But uh, but yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so today you have chosen a really iconic little Florida dude to talk about. Let's talk about it. All right. When you reached out to me and uh, you kind of gave me some freedom to just to think about what species I wanted to talk about. And it was hard because again, like Florida has so many and I love all of them. Like every single one of them is just, uh, just my heart explodes for them. Um, you are experiencing my struggle every single week yeah. when I have to pick one thing to talk about. <laughs> but then one day I was out and I came across this beautiful green and all and it just struck me like, how has this even been a challenge? Like, this is obviously what you have to talk about because um, I just love these precious little guys so much. And I don't think they get, I mean, I think people are familiar with them, but I don't think they get as much play as they should. And, um, and two, it's a really interesting intersection of my worlds because you cannot talk about the green anole in Florida without talking about the, some of the non-native anoles in Florida. So yeah, just like, it just hit me like, obviously that's what I need. <laughs> They're one of these animals that's like, it's, it's like squirrels or pigeons where they become mm -hmm. so commonplace that you ignore them. Mm -hmm. But there's so much interesting going on with them when we really zoom in on them. So I'm really yeah. excited. Yeah. And so again, going back to, to the disclaimer that I am not actually a biologist myself, um, but have worked in natural resources a long time and have worked, especially with herpetologists, because I love herpetology and uh, have been 
uh, really lucky to work with some really cool herpetologists in the state as well. So I have, you know, been hanging out with the Knolls for a really long time and I know a good bit about them, but I wanted for this especially to do my homework. And so, um, and make sure really that I backed up the stuff I already knew with like, like where the facts are from. So I'm, I do have some sources that I want to share. Um, I'm getting my information from an incredible website called Anol Annals. Um, it's essentially kind of a collection of blogs about Anol research. And if you want to check them out, it's Anol, A-N-N-A-L-S.org, AnolAnals.org. Also um, looking at the UGA Savannah River Ecology Laboratory Herpetology Program and Animal Diversity Web. Oh, I love them. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say that. I'm actually, I have a little bone to pick with them about this species. Um, and so we're going to get into that. But um, so I'll start with uh, some taxonomy. <laughs> Before we get into the ratings, I know that you guys have had some other species where the taxonomy is a real journey. And the uh, <laughs> Carolina green anole, Anolis carolinianensis, um, oh my I'm gosh. good at Latin, is, um, <laughs> is no stranger to that uh, taxonomic drama. Spill the tea. I'm so ready. <laughs> so we're going to start on a grand scale. It's in the suborder Iguania. So this includes iguanas, chameleids, agamids, and anoles. They're in the family Dactylidae. However, some people treat this as a subfamily of the family Iguanidae. So even just there between suborder and family, there's some disagreement about how things all fit together. But ultimately, through that suborder and those families, they are in the genus Anolis. Um, and this genus is specific to the Americas, specifically the kind of tropical Americas. Kind of depending on whether you're a taxonomic lumper or splitter, there are considered to be anywhere from 425 to only 45 species of Anolis genus. That is quite a range. It is. And so a lot of those changes too come from, you know, now we have so much more genetic research going on. And so we really can be even more uh, specific about how we separate things out. But there's, yeah, there's just a lot of kind of disagreement on where this Anolis genus kind of where everything fits. So I want to talk really quickly about anoles in general, because they are a really good example of both adaptive radiation and convergent evolution. And there's a little section, I'm kind of almost read this verbatim from the website I stole it from because um, I get really it's, I want to make sure I get the language right, but essentially populations of anolis lizards on isolated islands diverge to op occupy separate ecological niches, mostly in terms of the locations within the vegetation where they forage. So talking about uh, a lizard that specializes in foraging around the trunk of a tree or the uh, branches or the crown. And these divergences in habitat are accompanied by morph morphological changes. And so these patterns also repeat themselves on numerous islands. So you get this um, adaptive radiation where you get this speciation based on where they end up specializing in the canopy, but then you also get this repeated form, you see these same patterns happen on different islands. So this is especially, you can see this especially with the Anolis genuses, or Anolis species, sorry, that are on the greater Antillean islands. So the fossil record tells us that they got there around 50 million years ago, and they started spreading and occupying these different niches. And together, these different species make up a community. And in studying the fossil record, they see that these communities have existed for about 20 million years. And so there's four basic ecomorph body types by which we kind of speciate these anole lizards. Hopefully that makes sense. Essentially, it's species that occupy the trunk or end crown of the tree. 
um, species that occupy the trunk and ground, ones that occupy trunk, and ones that occupy twigs. So these are kind of the four main categories. And not much has changed with that over the last millions of years. So you see there, you, we still have very much these kind of same groupings. But what's really interesting is we also see some really rapid adaptations, which I'm going to talk about later with the green anole. So um, I encourage you, if you're not familiar with the Caribbean or the Antilles anoles, to look these bubbles up because they are beautiful. You've got anoles <laughs> that are like bright blue. You've got anoles with these amazing color variations. It's just, it's really incredible and it gets really complex really quickly, um, but it's really interesting. And so the green anole itself, so kind of bringing it home to Anolis Carolin carolinianensis, um, That's going to trip you up every time. <laughs> I know. I'm not going to say anymore. The green and all. Um, it's a very well-studied species, but mostly in the lab. It's been really, it's been used for a lot of research on the genome and different things like that. But there's less research on it in its own natural habitat. But there are some things we do know. So there's this super charming paper from 1876 that was titled The Flora Chameleon, which because of their ability to change color, that was kind of a common name for them back in the day. And we'll talk yeah. more about that ability later. So anyways, this, this gentleman, Reverend, it just says S. Lockwood, so I'm not sure what the S stands for. But he detailed accounts of his pet anole, which was named Noli. And he says that the green anole is everything that is commendable, clean, inoffensive, pretty, and wonderfully entertaining, provoking harmless mirth and stirring up the inner thinker, the profoundest depths of his philosophy. I'm putting that as like the caption for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I can send you that quote. It's so poetic. We've been looking at these guys for quite a while and their evolution, their, their closest relative is the Cuban, a Cuban trunk crown species, Anolis horcatus. And so genetic analysis shows us that they are likely descended from these populations in Western Cuba, but they were dispersed to Florida around 6 million years ago, which tells us that humans weren't the dispersal mechanism. So that's one of the things we'll talk about when we get to brown anoles as well, is that anoles have been dispersed across the globe at this point, but these guys have been in Florida long enough to and the Southeast to tell us that they probably were, you know, they came over on their own. Um, but here's where the drama comes in. It has been debated, and I would imagine just knowing how taxonomic experts debate with each other, it's probably been debated hotly, that, um, <laughs> that these green anole populations in the southeast are really the same as the, the Cuban anole. They're, they're not two different species. Um, and so this has been debated and debated. And actually, just this year in 2020, new research was published by Joanna Wagner and some colleagues that basically said, yep, these are the same species based on the fact that so this Cuban anole has been introduced to South Florida and they readily breed and hybridize with the green anole. They also their morphological differences are extremely minor and they basically have no there's no reproductive isolation shown. So essentially they're saying, all right, this year, this new research, we're settling the debate. It's one species. Now, it gets even more dramatic because apparently, and if I'm understanding this correctly, Anolis, I have to say it again, Carolyn <laughs> was named before the Cuban anole. And so because of that, the rules of nomenclature say that the oldest recognized name is the one that gets kept, which would mean the Cuban anoles would then take on our 
species name and not vice versa. There's people who aren't going to love that because they're, you know, like their species. There's also evidence that within the Cuban populations, they're not a monophyletic entity. So Eastern populations are more closely related to a different species or one that's recognized as a different species than they are to the ones that our Florida and Southeast populations came from. This would mean that there are technically both a Carolinianensis and a Porticatus in Cuba. It's a mess. It's, just, <laughs> it's all over the place. The take-home message to me here is they, these two species are very closely linked, very likely, you know, still genetically the same species. But it's important to recognize that the green anole is the only anole native to the southeastern United States. There are no other native anole species on our continent, which is another reason why I just, uh, why I love this guy so much, because they're unique. They, they made it out of the Caribbean and they like were survivors and they spread on up throughout the southeast. So their range today, they're in Florida, um, they range up to about North Carolina, and then along the Gulf over through Texas, all the way to the Rio Grande. So these guys have really just like, you know, taken over the Southeast. They are established uh, outside of their native range, um, most likely through the pet trade. So they can be found today in Hawaii, Guam, Palau, some other islands, um, also some other islands in the Caribbean that they're not native to. The only evidence I could find that they were actually invasive anywhere outside their native range is in Japan. They are established on an island where they actually have driven some extinctions. I don't know like the details, but so they seem to be very um, invasive there. And then something that we see a lot with invasives is that one invasive species can uh, support another. So Guam is a good example of this. The green anole introduced to Guam provided food for the brown tree snake, which is an incredibly devastating invasive species in Guam, has wiped out 70% of the native birds to Guam. But this non-native kind of is, some, is another food source for it. So it supports that. So while that species may not be invasive itself, it kind of helps the invasion along of another species. You know, when I was in Hawaii, I would see green anoles, but as somebody who was there doing invasive species work, it wasn't one of the species we were worried about. There are just a lot more things to worry about that are actually doing damage. The anoles you would see around restaurants and stuff, but they weren't really hurting anything. They weren't like going nuts. So really, like I said, the only place I really saw where they were like a major problem was this island in Japan. Um, so these are little guys. They are about, uh, like the longest they'll get is about eight inches, um, and their tail accounts for over half their body. So they're just like a bunch of tail. And um, they weigh between two to six grams. So that's like, at their heaviest, they're not even 0.01 pounds. They're just little <laughs> light little dudes just running around the trees. They're long, but they're skinny. Yes. Yeah, right. They're long and skinny. And they're, you know, yeah, so just real lightweight. They're like this lime green. But as we mentioned, they can change color. So you will see them kind of as a dull brown, olivey color. And they have this hot pink dewlap. And uh, and we'll talk more about the dewlap as well. Um, I'm so excited. That's like the thing I'm really excited to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so when they are putting on their show of being bright green and sticking out that pink dewlap, they're just like these beautiful, beautiful little dudes. So the color change. 
So this results from layers of pigmented cells called chromatophores. And I'm pretty sure you guys have talked about that with other things that, that are able to change their color. I think with the chameleon, with yeah. the veiled chameleon specifically. They have three types of pigment cells, xanthophores, cyanophores, and melanophores. Um, and each are responsible for a different color variation. So I don't think, and some experts could at me about this, but I don't think we actually know super well why they change color. I mean, we know it's like, essentially it's a response to their external environment. So things like temperature change, excitement, activity or competition. Like for me, like I can't imagine that they don't use it as camouflage because it is such good, like I've, I've literally sat there and watched that. I mean, more times than I can out count, I've just sat there and watched one turn from green to brown and like disappear into the tree. But I can't like, there's not a lot of conclusive research out there that's like, this is why they do that and when they do that. They do think that when they're real dark brown or almost black, that this is a response to like cold stress and stress conditions. And I remember even asking one of my colleagues who was an herpetologist, like, you know, why do they do the color change? Like what, what triggers it? What's, and they're like, uh, you know, like <laughs> it's a response, but I don't think there's real clear, like, oh, when it does this, it's because of this type, type of an explanation. They do have some sexual dimorphism. Males are larger um, with larger heads. Their dewlaps are much larger. In fact, you very rarely even see the female's dewlap. The female will often have a white line that runs along their back, but just between their neck and stops before their tail. Um, so you you can kind of, you can tell the difference, but, um, you know, if it's a giant one, it's probably a male, but then otherwise, like, you don't know if it's just like a little one or a female versus a male. They mostly eat insects and spiders, but they'll also prey on small vertebrates and even occasionally consume fruit or seeds um, and drink nectar from flower, but they're primarily insectivores. And the green anole, so we have to fit it into its anole, its specialized anolis ecomorph, which is the trunk crown. So they specialize in that trunk to up high in the tree areas. But what's special about the green anole is that because in its native range, the southeast, it didn't have any competition from these other ecomorphs, it actually is a much more of a generalist than you than the other ones, than its counterparts in the islands. And so it will come down to the ground. You'll see them around the base of trees. And this is where we really see the brown and all come in and, and make an impact too. So that's kind of the, the overview. And I want to talk a little bit about brown and all's real quick to kind of set the stage because this is going to play into their effectiveness and ingenuity. Okay, very good. So one of the things that's important to recognize is that if you're, and, and really I'm sp speaking here specifically to Florida, um, like we said, anoles, green anoles exist up into Georgia and the Carolinas, as well as west of us. But this interplay with the brown anoles so far really only happens in Florida. The brown anoles haven't, aren't too well established outside. They are there, but not like they are in Florida. And so this is an interesting one because... Oftentimes when you have a species like this that has been so incredibly successful, like it's now considered the most abundant lizard in Florida, but as far as its actual invasiveness, so it's definitely not native. It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely introduced by human activity and it's definitely established, but, but is it invasive? And the way it would earn that term invasive is what is its negative impact to our economy, our health, or our environment? It doesn't really impact the economy or our health. No problems there. 
But the environment is still kind of a big question because, and this is where I have that beef with the um, animal diversity website, because there's this quote in the animal diversity website that says, while flora was once the central portion of the green annals United States distribution, today most Florida populations have been replaced by introduced annul species. That is a pretty bold statement. Yeah, I don't know about that one, y'all. <laughs> yeah, so here's the thing. Here's what's true. The, and speaking specifically about the brown annul, because when you get into South Florida, you're, uh, you got a whole other can of worms because you got a whole other set of introduced annuls there. So if we were kind of separating, I'm not talking about this anola soup you got going on in South Florida, um, <laughs> but in areas where you just find the brown anole just proliferating and competing with the green anole, here's what is true. They definitely, the brown anole definitely reigns supreme in urban areas. So whereas prior to brown anoles, you still would have seen your green anoles in urban areas, um, you really won't anymore. You're pretty much going to only see browns with the occasional green anole. So it's really easy to draw this bold conclusion because a lot of the areas where people usually saw them in abundance, now they only see browns, right? So that that's like, oh man, they're just, they're, the greens are gone now. But the problem with that is, and I'm going to use um, some anecdotal evidence, which is a no-no, but it's my anecdotal evidence comes from someone who spends a lot of time out in the woods in Florida. And, and so here's a good example of how this, this plays out in oftentimes in more natural areas, state parks. So a lot of our state parks will have a front area where you enter. There's probably some buildings. They've probably done some landscaping. So these brown anoles are in every nursery in Peninsula, Florida. These things like love nursery environments. They are perfect for brown anoles. So whenever you landscape an area, you are bringing in brown anoles. So these state parks that typically have these uh, landscaped areas, you're going to see a lot of brown anoles around there. But once you get out on the trails, and you get even just a little bit removed. I'm not talking miles into the wilderness. I'm talking about once you get away from that campsite introduction office area, you really don't see the browns, but you see the greens. So there's that component of it. The greens are still doing pretty well in these forested areas. Um, and where and the browns really aren't aren't there. So and then in neighborhoods, you will still see both. And in fact, in a lot of the neighborhoods where I live on Amelia Island, I mean, my yard, um, the yard of the office that I'm sitting in, I see tons of greens. I see some browns, but I see lots of greens. So there's also some research that we're going to talk more about in their um, ingenuity that shows some other reasons why we might think that the brown anole is replacing the green anole completely, but that's really not the case. So all this to say, yes, in some ecosystems, the brown anole is displacing the green anole. Is it pushing it to extinction in Florida right now? No, the, the green anole is doing okay in Florida right now. So it's it's a it's a fine line. And so some you'll see some people refer to brown anoles as invasive. You'll see some people just refer to them as introduced or established. And it's for that reason because it's still kind of a blurry line. Um, at this point, you can probably say with some certainty that they have some negative impact on the population. So then you could say, yeah, they're definitely invasive because they have some negative impact, but they aren't pushing them to extinction. So that's good. So a little bit more about the brown anole. It's a trunk ground ecomorph. So remember, we said the green anole was a trunk canopy ecomorph. Essentially, they occupy different niches. But like we said, that green anole here in the U.S. being more of a generalist, it ventured down to the ground because it didn't have that competition. 
But now with this, the introduction of this brown and all, it does have that competition, but the brown and all can't get it, doesn't really go up into the trees. So that's a safe haven for the greens. It's primarily in peninsular Florida. It's expanding into South Georgia. I, I think there are populations in Texas and other places, but again, nothing like what we've got here in Florida. Now, telling them apart can be tricky. Their dewlap is a little different. It's more of a red-orange than a, a nice hot pink like you're going to see in your green. Um, some ways to tell them apart, so that dewlap is one. Um, if you are looking out of a lot of anoles, like the head shape, the brown anoles, it's a little like stubbier, whereas the green anoles head and nose is kind of more pointed and a little more elongated. One huge one is if you see any green on the anole, it's definitely a green because a brown anole cannot turn green, but a green anole can turn brown. Mm. Sometimes when the green anole changes around its eyes, there'll still be a little green left. And that's a dead giveaway. If there's any green, definitely a green. The females of the brown will have these really obvious diamond patterns or bold bars or strips on their back. So that's another way to tell. But the eye is a really good giveaway because often the brown anole will have like these dark bars kind of coming out from the top of its eye. They're small, but you can see them. And if you know what the green and all eye looks like, there's nothing like that there. There's no kind of pattern around their eye, but it's tricky. I mean, I still see brown, green anoles out in the woods or, you know, out and about. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm not totally <laughs> sure which one that is. But there are some things that often are some dead giveaways. With all of that, I'm ready to talk about effectiveness. Yes. <laughs> and for effectiveness, I don't think I get into the brown anole too much. I'm going to bring that up more in ingenuity. So for effectiveness, I gave this guy a nine out of a 10. Oh, beautiful. They are good at doing what they need to do. I think that just the demonstration of like, you know, once they made it up into the U.S. and got free from uh, the competition from the other annuls, the fact that they kind of became generalists, I think is, you know, that's more effective. It's more effective to be able to, you know, traverse a broader part of your, your habitat. They have some communication techniques. Oh my gosh, I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah, it's just really cool. They um, And you've probably seen this. And when I say it, you'll be like, oh yeah, for sure. And and this is very similar to brown and else. So you'll see them do these behaviors as well. The color, they think, so the color changes, they think can communicate things to other annuls. But for mating, they do this head bobbing stuff. Mm, they bob, yeah, you know? okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the head bobbing is not only a mating thing, it's also kind of, they can do that sometimes when they're threatened or when they're defending their territories. Males defend their territories. And then you have uh, the dewlap as well, which is also both a mating and a uh, and an aggressive uh, display. So the dewlap, I've said this word a bunch of times, it's this little, it's a fan shaped, it's not a pouch, but it kind of looks like one because when it's all crumpled up, it, it kind of is pouchy on its throat. On the underside of its throat that they can flay out like a fan to display like, hey ladies, look at me, look at my pretty color, or alternatively to say, hey man, like in the males, because like I said, the females, you rarely, rarely see the dewlap. This is really a, a structure in the males to draw in the ladies or to, to tell another male, like, this is my place. And so if you've ever seen, and you'll see both browns and greens do this, if you see two anoles on a tree or on a wall together, and they're bobbing their heads and they're sticking those dewlaps out, that's a territory fight. They're being like, mm -mm, buddy, this is my place. Like, this is my spot. So the males have, typically you'll have one male in a territory and then just like some females up in there. Like the females have a smaller range. And so the male territory size is directly correlated with the size of that male. So a bigger male has defense, a bigger territory. And so, yeah, like I've, I've seen that a lot 
on tree trunks, especially where you've got two anoles and they're just kind of like going around the tree and puffing up, bobbing the head and fanning out that dewlap. So, um, so that communication, um, that they have. It's very impressive to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's real (laughs) funny. It's real fun to kind of just watch them interact. Um, they've got a pretty broad diet, so they'll attempt to eat anything smaller than their head. They have kind of three ways of hunting. One of the big ways is that they'll just perch on a branch or something and, and kind of watch and wait for prey that come within striking distance and then just grab it. Um, they also will do kind of a slow approach and leap at, at prey, and then they'll also ambush. So they've got a couple different, and this is um, this is a little unique from other anole species. They've got a little bit more in the toolbox when it comes to hunting methods, um, and then avoiding predation. So these are little guys. They're a good snack for some of our bigger species: uh, birds, snakes, other reptiles, um, some non-native species, uh, free-roaming and feral cats really can hurt a um, lizard population. This is where I get to do my plug to please keep your pet cats indoors. Trust me, it's better for them and the environment. A cat can really make a hit on a, a null population among other birds and other other native species. So, so they do, I mean, they've got a lot of pressure uh, from predators, but they've got some really cool ways to combat that as well. So um, one, they can just hide, you know, they're, they're little, they can change their color. So, you know, the hide in trees or vegetation. But this is crazy, and I learned this today because I did not know this. They actually have a structure similar to a patagium. Do you, do you know what that is from doing the bats? No. <laughs> it's a membrane or fold of skin between the forelimbs and hind limbs of a bat or a gliding mammal. So it's a mammal part, but they have something similar to that that enables them to glide down from tall trees. Isn't that wild? What? Like, I've never seen that happen. I mean, I obviously you can, I mean, they can bleep and, you know, they are pretty graceful, but that just blew my mind. And like, I just learned that today when I was just, like I said, just doing my homework to make sure I knew. It's like, whoa, they have these little wing things, apparently. That's like, oh, you know, this animal you've seen like a million times in your life, mm-hmm. it can fly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Enjoy knowing about that now. Like, oh, by the way, it can glide in the air, like a, <laughs> you know, like the most graceful thing you've ever seen. So that's super neat. Um, And then also they have the ability to walk vertically on surfaces because they have these little uh, adhesive pads on there. And you you see that in other things like geckos that kind of have these adhesive pads. So all of those things, even though they are heavily predated, um, you know, there's a lot of things that want to eat them. They also are pretty good at, you know avoiding predators. Before we move on from the adhesive pads, this is like a mechanical feature of the feet. Is it like with the skin folds in the feet or? So it's from some, I believe it's from something called lamellae, which is a thin layer like membrane that's on their toe pads. But that's about as much as I know about it. I don't know too much about this adhesive mechanism, but it exists and it allows them to just, you know, go up vertical walls. And and you see this all the time with them, right? They're just chilling on a like straight up and down fence or something like that. So um, I bet if I go outside right now, there's probably one right outside my window because my in my office that I record and stuff in, I have a window that faces out into the front porch. And that's where my cat likes to sit and watch lizards all day long. I was talking to a coworker last night who was telling me about their cat sitting outside watching annuls, but they don't let their cat outside. And I was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. thank you for not letting your cat go catch up. But they do. They love to watch them, right? Just mm-hmm. sit there and and, uh, and stare at them. So um, I wish I did know more about that. But yeah, I think it's they have this, this membrane 
that has adhesive properties to it. One thing uh, that one point I took away for effectiveness, you guys talk about this a lot, like what does the animal do with its young? What's the investment there? Um, as far as we know, once the eggs are laid and hatched, and I don't even know once that once they're laid, I think there's no parental investment in the young. So bye. <laughs> yeah. See you later. Off off to, to do my thing. Um, basically, when they hatch out, they are mini versions of their adult selves. They're just tiny. So they look just like they will. They'll get some other features as they get bigger. But essentially, they, you know, to the eye, it's just like a tiny version of the big one. Um, and they just, yep, they're on their own. They just got to figure it out. Um, so that was the one point I took away was that they aren't really, they don't do the parent thing. I tell you what, my five-year-old is now, is now projected to be home for the next two weeks. So I'm You're kind feeling of feeling that. like maybe we have some things to learn from the yeah. green and null. Yeah. So really cool. So that's my uh, effectiveness score. And that really is the bulk of, so my ingenuity, um, I, I gave it an eight out of 10. And that is because of how cool I think what they have done is in relation to facing a new competitor in the brown and null. And I don't have as much on this, but it's it's pretty neat. Um, so first, I want to say that the research that I'm going to be talking about, um, it's from that Anol Annals website, but it's it's from blog posts about other research. So I want to shout out to the actual researchers themselves, which who are uh, Yoel Stewart, Todd Campbell, and Ambika Kameth. So these are the people whose research is essentially synthesized by this other, you know, this blog entity and, and put out there. So um, I want to make sure I recognize that they are the people who've done a lot of this work. So what they did essentially is they, okay, so Florida has spoil islands. Do you know what, are you familiar with our spoil islands? Spoil island? Yeah. No, I've never heard this before. Back in the day, I think around the fifties, um, you know, Florida has this intercoastal waterway that runs down the, the right along the East coast of the peninsula. And that there was a lot of already existing waterways. It's built from a natural waterway, uh, the St. John's River, and then even going down further, just, you know, Florida's so much water, but they had to create a lot of it too. So as they created this water, this contiguous water body that they could use to move goods and whatnot, they needed somewhere to put the stuff they dug up to create the waterway. So they created what are called these spoil islands. Essentially, it's the spoil, the just the sand and whatever. And so there's a lot of these up in Northeast Florida. And over time, like I said, this was around the 50s that a lot of these were created. You know, over time, they were colonized by plants and the green anoles got there. And so they had their own little habitats going on. And what this did was this created a really unique environment to study how the anoles would respond to or how the anoles do respond to brown anoles because they had these islands that brown anoles hadn't made it to yet, but green anoles existed. So they introduced some brown anoles to some of these. And these are very small. These aren't big. They're just little like, you know, I'm really bad at, at space, but like the size of a small house as far as space, you know, just like not real big islands. Um, the pocket ecosystem. It's a pocket, yeah, it's a pocket <laughs> ecosystem and it provides this perfect lab, right, out in the, you know, relatively in nature. And so um, kind of this perfect accidental lab that was created. So when they did this, they found two things. They found some rapid evolution and some behavior change. Ooh. Yeah, right? The behavior change that they found is it makes a lot of sense is that, as I mentioned before, because these brown anoles are more of a trunk species and these green anoles are more of an arboreal species, but had become generalist, 
essentially the green anoles just abandoned that generalistness and went up into the trees where the Cubans couldn't compete with them. So they saw that behavior change almost right away. On the spoil islands that still were only green anoles, you still had them being generalist up and down. But on these islands where the brown anoles started becoming profuse after introduction, they just moved on up into the trees. So I think that's pretty for an animal, you know. I'm just going to go where you can't get me. They know their strengths. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, I'm giving them ingenuity credit for that. And so the other thing though, and so this is, so they did this work and then 15 years after this initial study, they were like, I wonder if there's been any morphological changes in these green anoles on these spoil islands that are competing with the brown anoles versus the green anoles on the spoil islands that still don't have brown anoles. So they went back and they found that in only 20 generations, these green anoles on these islands with the brown anoles had evolved larger toe pads and more of that lamellae stuff that I mentioned before that is the thin layer on their toe pads. And this is consistent with those high perching species in the Caribbean. So remember I said that it's that um, convergent evolution. They can predict how an anole will evolve based on the habitat it its niche is. And so we see that in only a short, like 15 year time span, we can see this happening with these green anoles. And they did a lot of research to rule out other causes. So I'm not, I can't, I can't like list it all and I can't go into it. But if you read the the blog that, you know, summarizes this study, they're like, they, they worked really hard to make sure they weren't attributing this to the wrong thing. Um, they did a lot of research to, to rule out other factors and kind of came to the conclusion that, yes, it really is the competition with these brown anoles that uh, drove this, um, this rapid evolution. So I'm giving them ingenuity for that, too. <laughs> yeah, that's like ingenuity, like zoomed out, right? Yeah. Like ingenuity as a species. That's like genetic ingenuity, which I think is really, really cool. And that's just why anoles as a genus. Like, again, I, I encourage you to learn more about just the whole genus of anoles. They're so freaking neat and just evolutionary. We have they've been so they've been researched so much because of these like really interesting adaptations and, and evolutionary processes. So that's the eight out of 10 for ingenuity. And then aesthetics. I, you know, I know you guys like I appreciate that you guys really try to be uh to put up a um, an objective front with your species, that about y'all. But for me, this guy gets a ten out of a ten. All right, listen. All rules go out the window <laughs> in the aesthetic section. The aesthetic section is literally just your purely biased opinion. Yeah. So when this when this uh, lady or fella is is got its pure green outfit on, and it's just you know, and so the thing that I stopped myself from mentioning before when I was talking about it, its looks is that it actually has this little bit of blue eyeshadow. Um, and I don't know if this is gender specific. I didn't come across that when I was reading more into them, but, um, but you'll see this, it just kind of either under the eye or all the way around the eye, you'll see this little hint of this beautiful, subtle blue color. And, um, and that's another way that can kind of help you distinguish between the brown is that, like I said, with the brown, they've got that kind of funky, these bars around their eyes. The green really doesn't have that. And a lot of times you'll still see a little hint of green there, but you'll also, again, see this little blue eyeshadow that they have. And it's reminiscent of the blue colors you'll see in the island annals um, that get really vibrant blues in them. So to me, there is nothing cuter than a little green. And this is reflected in my Instagram because I will never not post a green and all. Like I like, <laughs> I try not to like flood with too many of the same species or plants. I'm like, oh, I posted that plant already. I'll wait a year or something. But when it comes to green and all, 
channels, as soon as the weather starts warming up, my feed gets green because these, <laughs> these little critters are just the cutest thing. And, and it's interesting too, in working with, because I've also done a little bit of work with this, this herpetologist group. Um, I've had a little bit of interaction with some other iguana species and some other lizard species in their family. And they, like when you interact with these guys, like if you go outside and you see an anole and assuming it doesn't just run away right away, it'll look directly at you. It'll kind of like turn its head side to side, try to figure out like, what is this thing? One thing you can do to catch them is, I guess because of the way their eyes are positioned, you can kind of put movement on one side of them and they won't really know what's going on on the other side of them. And you can kind of like, that's one kind of trick that the herpetologist used to like catch them is like, look what's happening over here. Like jazz hands <laughs> over here. And then this hand comes in and grabs them. Um, That's the most Looney Tunes thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and so when, sometimes if I have to get one out of a house or something, I'm like, okay, if I can get it to be still and distract one side of its body, I can like, maybe I can grab it. Oh, I, so I forgot to mention in effectiveness, like a lot of other lizard species, they can drop their tails. I just remembered that um, when I was talking about, so that's another way they get away from things is they do and they'll regenerate. It's grotesque. It is terrifying to yeah, me. Yeah, that's like a less pleasing one, um, but they're just <laughs> real cool. And I think going back to like, this comes full circle back to that quote from this guy who had his little pet anole named Anoli. Um, <laughs> they really, they can be like, and I think this is also what, what made them popular for a time in the pet trade is they can be kind of social. And if in your yard or in your, like if a null, if an annul kind of gets used to your routine and you, cause they have routines too, like you said, you said, I can probably go out there right now and I'll, I know he's going to be there. And it's the same for me. Like I know there's a few annuls, like I know where they're at. I know where they're hanging. I can go see them. They will kind of, they'll study you and they'll, you know, without, I don't want to anthropomorphize. I try really hard not to do that as one of those people who just loves the animals, just wants to hug and squeeze all of them. I still try to, you know, it's, it's an animal, but they do seem to have kind of this interest and like, what is this thing? And like, what's going on? And, and that too, I think just endears you to them. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're just so cute. And you're just this little dude just bobbing around out here doing your thing. (laughs) Um, And I get to observe it. I feel like they definitely make me feel like I'm living in Jurassic Park just like the tiniest bit Mm -hmm. it's just a little touch of dinosaur in your life yeah Uh, and a friendly dinosaur right I I mean they're just a little friendly dinosaur in your life have you I don't know if you've seen this and I don't encourage this but you know the kids will catch them and like put them on their ear and they'll just hang there like um, I've seen kids with with them hanging off of their fingers fingers um and, and again, I, I tend, I, I discourage any kind of like unnecessary interaction, but they, like, like I said, they will kind of, they'll check out people and they'll look and see what's going on. And this is similar with the Browns. The Browns will kind of do that too. Um, so you can kind of get this same interaction, especially if you're in an area, if you're in an area, there, there are parts of Florida, like I said, if you're in a real urban environment, you may only be seeing brown anoles. But if you're in a community that has some green spaces or if you're getting out into the woods, you know, you'll see you'll see the start seeing those greens around. So for our last bits, I think because um, I know you guys usually give some last factors, I kind of like just threw it all out there. Um, I will mention conservation status, least concern. So again, going back to that whole, are brown anoles, you know, driving at least the local extinction of greens? One, not too much, not to the point of like overall extinction. You know, they do exist outside of Florida, like I mentioned. So those populations are fine. But even within Florida, 
we're not, you know, they're doing okay. They're doing their thing. That's why they get high marks for effectiveness and ingenuity. You know, they, they're out there living their lives and, and luckily we're not having to worry about losing them anytime soon. So that's good. Um, it's going to take a little bit more than some brown lizards to shake yeah. the green anole. Oh yeah. It's, they, they have too much, uh, too much intelligence for that mess. So that's my, yeah, that's my critter. And uh, that's beautiful. They're, they're real sweet and cool. I love this. I will share before we wrap up with some final details from you. I would like to share that my first memory of my entire life, like my earliest memory in my brain is of finding a green anole on the windowsill mm-hmm. in the house that I lived at with my mom when I must have been not even two years old. I found a green anole on the windowsill and it was in my memory, it was the length of my entire arm, (laughs) right? Because I was a little kid. I was really little. So I was very small. So I remembered this lizard as being just like in my memory it's just Mm -hmm. monstrous right Mm -hmm. it's like the size of my arm I remember like finding it and looking at it and I remember my mom telling me oh that's a lizard and I was like oh a lizard and I think maybe because I learned the word for it maybe that's why like it stuck in Mm -hmm. my brain but like that's it that's my earliest memory and I think that's the only memory I have of that house that I lived in with my mom is finding a lizard I love that that's amazing yeah I mean I think I'm not I don't have like a really good photographic memory of my childhood but I know these little critters were ubiquitous in mine too because just because I was always we were always either at the beach or in the woods or you know so so we were outside so much that you know these were just a part of the landscape and like you said, though, too, that can cause you to kind of be like, oh, yeah, it's just that. But, you know, now kind of getting older and being more aware of my surroundings and just gaining this huge appreciation for these sweet little little critters. Yeah, we sort of get desensitized to how cool they are. But one of my favorite things is when somebody from up north comes to Florida, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like if they come to like Disney World or something, and it's their first time ever in Florida, you see them stopping every few minutes and being like, a lizard. (laughs) And I do that. I'm like that. I'm like, like I said, as soon as the temperature warms up, and they start coming back out from their little, you know, winter repose, I just it's the most exciting time for me. Like when they start coming out in my garden, I'm just like, Oh, hi, friend, I missed you. (laughs) The other day, I took my son to the Jacksonville Arboretum. Have you ever been there? I have. It's been a while, um, but it's I've been so there good. a few times. Yeah. So I took him there specifically because I had listened to this podcast called Field Lab Earth, and they talked about this sort of affliction in children of plant blindness, mm-hmm. where children can't recognize plants, or they at least cannot like conjure the image of like different types of plants. Yeah. And so I took my son out to the arboretum with a sketchbook because he is very into drawing. He t- he gets it honest, <laughs> so. Awesome. He he took a sketchbook out there and our and our goal for the day was to draw plants. So we were going to sit down and draw the different plants that we saw. Mm-hmm. And we got there and the first thing he saw of course was a lizard. <laughs> and then he just could not like yeah, I mean, focus. Like plants were nothing to him at that yeah. point. He was like I'm going to find a lizard. And I was like, "Okay, well, how about this? You draw some plants and then if we find a lizard, you can draw that." Uh-huh. And sure enough, we did. We got down to the gazebo at the bottom of the lake and we were sitting there and I had him draw like a couple of flowers and some leaves that he's like some ferns and stuff. And then this 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 green anole climbed up 
a post uh, that a sign was on. And I said, all right, buddy, here's your chance. (laughs) And he got so excited that the lizard just stayed in one spot and then started like flexing that throat doolab. Uh, Oh my gosh. Uh, You know what? Um, When this episode goes up, I'm going to post the picture that he drew because it's really cute. Oh, I love it. The lizard, he like, he really tried to focus on like drawing the right number of toes. Uh So he gave the lizard these enormous feet, like the feet are huge because he was trying to get the right number of toes so they just they, ended I mean, up being enormous they kind of have long slender you know they got they have big hands that's i, I love that um i i'm gonna try to remember that because i have a three-year-old and um and i actually i'll like i struggle sometimes with like in being in your facebook group because i'm i'm a big and i'm a big plant nerd and to me a lot of plants and flowers are as dynamic as animals and um it's funny because my sister-in-law is someone, she and I go out a lot, like on nature hikes and go different places and we'll be like bent over, take like really concentrating, taking a picture of something and people will walk by and be like, oh, what do you see? Like, is it a snake? Is it a, and we're like, oh, it's this plant. And they're like, oh, plant? <laughs> like what? And we, we laugh at that all the time because we're like, you don't know what you're missing. And again, with Florida, the diversity is so high and it's so fascinating. And um to me, the, the difference is minimal between plants and animals. I think plants are so dynamic. But that plant blindness is a huge barrier to invasive species work that relates to plants because so many people think green is good. If it's green and it's growing, it must be good for the ecosystem. And the inability and, and really just lack of desire to distinguish between different kinds of plants makes it really challenging to get that message across to people like, no, this plant creating a monoculture kills everything. You're going to lose your animals too, eventually, uh, if you don't wake up. And so um, that is such an amazing activity. I love that. I will refer you for plant appreciation um, because our our group and our community is more focused on the Mm -hmm. fauna. For Mm -hmm. the flora side of things, I will refer you to Planthropology. Oh, thank you. Have you you heard of this podcast, Planthropology? No, I'm in a lot of native plant Facebook groups, but I haven't really got into the plant podcasting. So Planthropology is run by, um, he's become a friend of mine. His name is Vikram Baliga, where Vikram sits down with different like horticulturists and like people that work in sort of plant related fields. Mm -hmm. And they talk about their careers, talk about their jobs, talk about interesting stuff about the plants that they study. Um, And so the the whole group is basically just like people posting cool plants and it's like a lot of plant appreciation. So So, and I've, I've got another way to bring this full circle is that, you know, with our animal today, uh, green anoles, if you want to bring green anoles to your yard, like if you're in Florida, obviously, if you're in a place where green anoles are native um, and you want to bring them into your yard, native plants is the way to do it. So this is a species that is directly impacted by the loss of native plant habitat. So um, my yard, I have it when I married my husband, we moved, he, he owned a house. And so we moved into that house and it was just like a huge grass. We have a, a lovely kind of large lot, but the front yard is just all grass. And I'm just like, I look at that and I see an ecological wasteland and I'm like, okay, I'm going to convert this. And so I, it's slow and steady. I just started and I've got a couple beds, but even just in those beds, I have so many green anoles. If you bring in a bunch of ornamental plants, you're going to get a bunch of brown anoles with them. 
and you know that's fine you're gonna get you know you'll have an, you'll have these these uh these lizards but if you want green anoles you got to get some native plants and they will come so yeah i mean that's it's a really close close connection and relationship there that's awesome yeah it's it's something that i think we don't talk en- enough about on our show is the the link between mm-hmm. like the the animal world and the plant world mm-hmm. um because there are so actually um i actually was a guest on on planthropology oh, cool. um we recorded a few weeks ago and by the time this episode that we're doing right now mm-hmm. goes up that episode will have gone up but so something that i mentioned in that episode when i talked about um because i was talking about animals that have complicated relationships with with plants mm-hmm. um so like leaf cutter ants and like sloths and all sorts of like animals with more complex relationships to plants than you would think mm-hmm. more complex than just eating the plant right <laughs> like, right so and something that i talked about was how like sometimes that line gets blurred a little bit mm-hmm. between animal and plant and you have mm-hmm. to really think about it like mm-hmm. one that i had to google recently was um anemones okay. i was like is that a plant? <laughs> I was like, I had no idea. Yeah. I was like, is that a plant or an animal? I had to yeah. Google it. Yeah. No, I mean, plants do really crazy thing. I mean, you've got parasitic plants, you've got carnivorous plants. And, you know, I should probably clarify. So the relationship with the annuls and the plants is that Florida being as biodiverse a place as it is in the Southeast in general, the native plants support the huge web of native insects, which is what the anole eats. And so, and this is the same with birds, actually. The proliferation of not not just invasive, but ornamental plants in general is bad for native bird populations because you lose the biodiversity of your base trophic level, those insects that so many uh, reptiles and birds rely on. And so that relationship is that it's, it's the plants host their wide web of prey. You're still going to get insects on ornamental slash non-native slash invasive plants, but the, the diversity and the amount is there's, there's a biologist, um, Doug Tallamy. And if you haven't heard of his work, that's another, I encourage you to really look at what he's done because he has, he's an, he's a, um, entomologist. That's what people who study insects, right? I'm getting that right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's an entomologist, and um, and that is exactly what he has studied is, and he's actually up in the Northeast, but it's the same relationship. The um, drastic declines in insects in urban areas or even landscaped green spaces that are all non-native plants versus when you introduce native plants. And he has done a lot of that in relation to bird populations, but it, it's all connected. And so... If you want to see, you know, your native, your little native critters, you know, put incorporate some natives into your landscape and, and that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to do it. And it's good for them and you're supporting, you know, you're supporting their life cycle as well. So awesome. I, I appreciate that guidance, especially as we, you know, we have this brand new house with this brand new yard in yeah. there with nothing in it. And so actually tomorrow Christian wanted to go make a shopping trip to go start getting some gardening supplies and start getting oh, some, oh. getting some native plants out there. So hopefully we'll have some progress to share with yeah. you later on. Um, we're new homeowners. We're new first time homeowners. So oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes well. I'm sure we'll make some mistakes, but we'll learn along the way. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I've been doing um, a lot. I've done a lot of programs focused in Florida on replacing invasive plants with natives in your landscape. And I mean, even in my own yard, like I said, I'm in the process of converting this huge grass turf area into native plants. And I'm, I'm learning. I put 
a bunch of different species in and I'm seeing what does better. And, you know, I got to do another round of it this year. And this is a good time because we're coming up on some really good big native plant sales. And two really good resources is obviously like your local native plant society chapter, but there's also an association of Florida native nurseries. Um, and you can just Google that. It's like the association of Florida native nurseries, and that will really help you find actual native plants because it can be really difficult in the big box store chain garden store setting, because even your native species are often like these cultivars that have been heavily modified and can still be somewhat useful, but aren't as useful to the the pollinators and all the different species. So um, that's a great resource because it can be, it's still, it's getting better, but it still can be tricky to find, you know, the right plants native plants for your area. Yeah, for sure. So other than planting native plants and keeping your cats inside, (laughs) um, what are some action items that we can take away? Like what other projects are you involved in that we can follow? Like what's going on that we can hit up and fill our news feeds and various social media platforms with green anoles and other such awesome content? Yeah. So if you're looking for, so two things, if you're looking for like native green anoles slash native animal content, um, I welcome followers on my personal Instagram, which is um, Emily Bell Photo. There is, it's, it's about a 70-15-15 split. It's about 70% native Florida landscapes, wildlife, anoles, 15% dogs, 15% toddlers. So there is some of that content <laughs> in there um, that you sign on for if you go to my personal site, but that's really where you're going to find my native. That's my passion, you know, my native animal content. But work-related, um, if you want to learn more about invasive species in Florida, um, my project, the Florida Invasive Species Partnership that I help coordinate, we are on Facebook. Just just search Florida Invasive Species Partnership. We are on Instagram and Twitter. The handles on both are protect under score Florida. Those are new. We are I'm in the process of developing a more robust social media campaign. So um, please go and follow us there and, and you'll see them become more active um, this year. But really, our Facebook page is the most active. And, uh, and yeah, we do put out, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to get involved with invasive species work. We do have a website, floridainvasives.org. And that will actually lead you to, so the program I coordinate is a statewide partnership, but regionally, every every part of Florida has a cooperative invasive species management area in it. And so you can get involved locally and you can find your local, we call them SISMAs, on, on our website. So you can go to our website. And I know you have listeners beyond Florida, so I'm sorry that this episode <laughs> is so Florida-centric, um, but that's really where, but any state you're in, a lot of states... Um, have these these invasive species partnerships because invasive species are such a big deal. So I do encourage you wherever you are to kind of look up your lead state organization. Um, it might be a pest plant council or an invasive species council type deal. Um, California's got some big ones, Washington State, New York, but pretty much all the states now, again, have something like that. And so wherever you are, you know, plug in with them and just keep abreast of, because here's the biggest thing and here's my plea. We need everybody to tell us where these things are. And so, if, you, for example, if you're in South Florida, there are some species like Argentine tegus and Nile monitors that are still relatively incipient, incipient populations. And if one of those is cited and reported to FWC, they will come and find it and remove it. But we need the public because we can't cover every part of, you know, there's private lands. We don't know what's going on there. There's, you know, so there's some really simple tools. Um, Ed Maps online, E-D-D-M-A-P-S. 
Um, you can download an app on your phone that no matter where you are in the nation, you can map, you can plug in invasive species sightings. So just, just kind of learn about wherever you are, you know, look into what are the invasives in my area I should be aware of. Um, get them out of your landscape. If you're like, oh man, you know, I don't want, you know, I don't want to put this mandate out there. Like anything non-native in your yard has to go. But if it's a known invader, you know, if you look something up and you're like, oh, you realize this is like really impacting my my natural areas, you know, remove that and replace it with something better. Um, but just being active and involved and, and giving us feedback is huge. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you've been able to connect with not only me, but also like everybody that's listening. That A lot of our listeners are in Florida. So, you know, I'm sure this is relevant to a lot of people. And for people that don't live in Florida, maybe it's interesting to yeah. um, learn about Florida outside of just the beaches in Disney World. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so much more, you guys. There's so much more. Most of it is not beach. It's mostly swamp. (laughs) Yeah, rivers. We have the most magnitude one freshwater springs of anywhere in the world. Florida is the place for springs. We have incredible rivers, lakes. Yeah, it's just, it's a magical, magical place. And if you, actually, I had someone reach out to me on my Instagram who's not from Florida and wanted to move here. And I post a lot of pictures of alligators and they were like, how are, like, and then I post pictures of me in the water and they're like, how are you not like, you know, what's the deal? And so I'm so open to sharing, you know, if you're not from here or you want to know more and if you want to understand our wildlife, because that's one of the things, you know, we have some stuff down here. You know, we're not Australia, but we got some stuff. We got some venomous snakes. We got some big reptiles. But if you come here, please engage with learning about the native species and how to coexist with them. They're not the enemy. They are beautiful and fantastic and interesting. And and we can very successfully, and most of the time, we do very successfully coexist with them. So a lot of people want to come here and just get rid of anything that bothers them. But, um, you know, learn about it and learn to love it. Like, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this conversation has been really helpful for me because like I learned some new things about not just not just anoles, but about the Florida ecosystem in general. So and that's what like I'm I'm all about it. I'm I'm very excited to learn. I'm I get really excited about learning about how a species fits in to yeah. the world around it and like how it plays into the bigger the bigger picture of the natural world. So I feel like I have come away with a deeper appreciation for the little everyday, the little yeah. everyday critters that we see all the time. So I, I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with us. This has been really fun. I've learned a lot. I'm very appreciative for you for, for sharing your voice with us. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, and I can't thank you enough for having me. I know like when I get excited. I talk fast and too much, but um, I really appreciate the opportunity and I I just love what you guys are doing and it's so delightful and um, it's really good. So thank you for for giving me my first podcast opportunity. Now you're not going to be able to stop and now you're going to be the podcast superstar that's going to be running around telling everybody to keep their cats inside and plant native plants. I would love that would that would be a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Emily. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. I know we've been talking for like 11,000 years, but just thank you. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks you too. All right, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. 